Hello, and welcome to At the Back of Your Mind, the Inspire the Mind podcast that brings you the science on mental health with a no-nonsense attitude. I'm one of your hosts, Juliette, together with my scientist friends, Carolina and Mariam. We're often joined by fabulous guests, so grab a cup of tea and let's dive into what exactly is at the back of your mind today. Hello, welcome to today's episode. Hey, Carolina. Hi, Juliette. It's just the two of us today. I'm afraid we don't have Mariam with us, but we have an amazing room full to the brim with attendees to the podcast. This is our first ever live recording of At the Back of Your Mind. Thank you, everyone, for coming. My name is Carolina. I am one of the hosts of At the Back of Your Mind. I've been here since day one, and I work as a postdoctoral research associate at the Shaper program, uh, Brainwaves, and recently, as of today, the Prana Yoga Study, and uh, that got ethical approval today. Yeah, The scientists will understand how hard this is. Hashtag achievement. Hashtag achievement. I'm also an assistant editor at Inspire the Mind, the parent mental health magazine of At the Back of Your Mind. I'm Juliette. I'm a PhD student. I work on modeling stress in uh, brain cells to study them. And I have also been a host and part of At the Back of Your Mind since its conception, its early days, since when it was a baby. It's still our baby. It's still our baby. Somehow it's the first time we're recording together. Yes. So big day for us as well. In fact, in this season, we have recordings from India, Singapore, Dubai, UK, Italy. Well, it's a jet set to this podcast. It is. So today, the title of the episode is Mythbusters. Who are you going to call? We want to talk to you about some myths around mental health, about the brain, um, run neuroscience, and we will try to debunk them to the best of our knowledge. So I wanted to start by telling you some figures uh, around mental illness in the UK. I think it's always good to create a context so we know exactly what's happening around us. And, you know, the figures change according to who has collected the data or what year we're talking about. So Let's not get too stuck with the exact numbers, but actually what they mean in in the society we live in. So it's estimated that one in four people in the UK will experience a mental health problem each year. So if you think that your social circle might have, I don't know, 20 people you you deal with in any given week. So 20 divided by four, that's five five people will probably have experienced the podcast. <laughs> I know, I'm PhD here. Uh, well, <laughs> so five people will have had a mental health problem uh, last year in, in that circle of 20 people you, you deal with. And when you think about school or work, about 15% of sick days are due to mental illness, um, either diagnosed or just symptoms that people are experiencing and keeps them from attending work. Um, And one in 10 children in the UK, children and young people, will have a clinically diagnosed mental health condition. So they will have looked for support. They will have had a diagnosis. And that's that's one in 10. That's quite high. I could talk about the cost of mental illness, uh, but I feel like that's too much like a grant application. That is not the topic of today's episode. (laughs) Yeah, but I think in a more serious note, I think 
in in 2020 there were almost 7000 suicides in the UK so people that have taken their lives due to a mental uh, illness in fact over 75% of people that take their lives have a diagnosed mental condition uh, so it's really important for us to talk about myths to really debunk uh, the science and to make sure that we get our facts straight and i say this as a mental health researcher but um, as as members of the the public, we we deal with these kind of issues every day, either work colleagues, friends, uh, people around us. Question: Yes, you talk to us about those myths. What do you mean by myths? Right? What do we consider a myth? So there are certain ideas that the public and even people that work in uh, mental health research might have about uh, mental illness. Uh, but it's really important for us to get our heads around. For example, and I, I know this is a very contentious one, I'm going to start big. Um, there's this idea that ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is very, very dangerous and it's very harmful and it's done like someone's trapped to a bed, kind of convulsing in extreme pain and discomfort. But actually ECT has come a long way since those horror film kind of scenes. And to this day, it's done under general anesthesia, for the utmost comfort of the patient. And actually the results are incredible, especially for conditions like severe depression. ECT is not given to anyone just because. Uh, it's usually, I wouldn't say last resort, but when other treatment options have been explored and it's given in very controlled inpatient settings to make sure that the safety and the well-being of the patient is kept. But the results are incredible in terms of um, cognition, memory, quality of life, and of course the most important in terms of symptoms of depression that are very quickly and uh, efficiently alleviated. I think actually a lot of the preconceived idea that the general public, not necessarily a scientific audience, may have about ECT is more related to the general imagery that's been going on because everybody thinks about those movies that, you know, yes. take place in, in the 50s and the 60s. I think here we probably also need to differentiate between like the public's image of it and also some of the pushback from part of the scientific community that's been happening around it. Mm -hmm. I guess it's probably because it does trigger, you know, a very visceral reaction when you think about it. But it is important to remember that it is still offered to people under certain conditions in, you know, a safe environment and only... In very specific cases, you wouldn't give that to anyone with, you know, a mild depression. It's because there's evidence. Yes, absolutely. But I think one of the things that makes the scientific community a bit more wary is because no one really knows how it works. You know, we know it's a bit of a black box kind of treatment. We know that it acts in brain circuits. We know that it makes people better, but we don't really know exactly the mechanisms in which it works. But we know it works and we know it's safe. So I think that's a pushback might come from there too. But it's a question that we could have about a lot of pharmaceutical treatments as well, to be honest. There's quite a lot of medication that has that started as something that we didn't know quite exactly how it worked or why it was effective, but it just happened to be. Like the tuberculosis medication that then became an antidepressant or the first generation of antidepressants. But that's not, that's quite like very specific to mental health, right? But there's a lot of general myths that you would hear all around the news. We had our episode about antidepressants. I don't know if it's considered a myth, but it's definitely going around that antidepressants don't work. But they do. <laughs> they don't work for everyone. Uh, they don't work for everyone. They don't work in every case, but they are life-saving. 
and they are necessary. And I think even us as researchers or, or people working in, in the mental health field, even clinicians, we might have some internalized stigma about taking antidepressants if we ever need them. And we might try to exhaust all the other options before going down the medication routes. And I think one of the reasons is, and you can hear more about this on our episode. Mariam has a great story about this, actually. She does. She does. I think you should listen to the episode so you know which story you're talking about. But I'll just give you a, a quick overview that there's there's this idea that antidepressants and antipsychotics, they create dependence. And so you never you shouldn't get into them because if you take them, then you won't be happy again without them. And this is absolutely not true. Uh, first, there's a high likelihood that they will make you happier. That's what they do. Uh, but in terms of dependence, um, what people usually think of dependence is actually symptoms of withdrawal. So stopping the medication all of the sudden without healthcare providers' help, without proper tapering of the dose, and uh, people just coming off something that was present in their system for so long. But actually, if this is done progressively and with supervision, um, you know, people get on and off antidepressants every day all over the world. Um, the only thing that I would say is that things like Xanax or Valium, and we don't have any sponsorship uh, or interests in this. I'm just mentioning them. Um, they are a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, and over the in the long term, they can create some some kind of drug tolerance, which is different from addiction. They can create a level of tolerance, but they are usually prescribed in the shorter term and under the supervision of a healthcare professional. So even these drugs that have a bad reputation, if things are done correctly, you know you have nothing to worry about. I feel like that's always the message we like, talk to your doctor, please. We should have that as a disclaimer in every episode. Do not search for medical advice on Google. <laughs> so dare I say, myth debunked. Hopefully. Myth busted. Myth busted. I have to say that some of my favorite ones are not necessarily mental health ones. They're more brain ones, but... They are all over the shop. Like, what is this thing about you only use 10% of your brain? Yes. Who said that? <laughs> Apparently, this was attributed to Albert Einstein, but he never said this. Oh, I love that. We have the answer. <laughs> but if you look it up, if you look it up, Einstein never said this. And it's not true. But around 95% of teachers in, I think this, this survey was done in Sweden, perhaps. 95% of teachers believe that this is true that we only use 10% of our brain. It's a great belief if you believe in like self-development. You know, I can be so much more. I have all this potential that I can tap into. Great in that sense. Doesn't hold scientifically. Does not. I mean, I think if you believe in your own potential, you can probably achieve more. But it has got nothing to do with the fact that you only use 10% of your brain. Which is not a fact. It is not a fact. It is a fact that somehow has been debunked so many times. I'm not quite sure why it's still like... People hold on to it uh -huh. like there is no tomorrow. Same thing with the, I mean, you've heard the left brain, right brain myth that believes that if you are left-handed, you are more creative. And if you're right-handed, you're more like analytical. You like numbers. That is not true. Uh, I think this was a result of a study on people that had lost function in a part of their brain on one of the sides and they realized that some, the 
same bit of the brain on the other side was doing something different. So they're like, that's it. Half of the brain does one thing, the other half does another thing. Not true. Um, there was there was another one. Oh, that people um, learn in very specific ways. So I'm like, I have to learn through doing things. So I learn through images or what's yeah, the third I'm type? a visual learner. Visual learner. <laughs> well, you talk about like visual learning style, auditory learning style and uh, kinesthetic learning styles. But everyone is like... You're not going to only have one learning style Mm -hmm. is the matter. So most people will tap into each of these learning styles to learn different things. But obviously you cannot only learn like through one of those learning styles. Otherwise we wouldn't have made it as a species. I can only learn through listening. But can you imagine me learning to drive? There's a big big lion coming my way. But he doesn't make a big noise, so I would never, you know, it's evolutionary. doesn't make sense that he'd only learn it does not, in a certain way. Have you never, like, had in school where you, like, some topics, you only learn them by, like, drawing, mm-hmm. you know, schemes on a paper, or just, you know, redoing stuff, like, writing stuff over and over again, and other stuff, you're just, like, pretending to, pretending to be a TV presenter in your room, recapitulating historical facts. <laughs> Can you tell that we used to do that a lot? Perhaps it was just me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the problem with this is then teachers themselves believe in these things. Again, going back to the same survey, it's like in the 90% around then. So, which means that there would be a tendency to put students in a certain box and think that they're barred from learning in a different way. Or, you know, she's left-handed. There's only about 10% of people in the world left-handed. Myself and Juliet included. Um, <laughs> and which means that we were made to believe that we were very uh, analytical, creative. Uh, I forget now. Knows. I it's, was going to it's say. It's a I lie, think... so I don't remember it anymore. I've deleted it from my brain. We're supposed to be creatives, but you have done and I am doing a PhD that are like super number heavy. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it just means that I was believe- made to believe that I would be very creative and not very good with numbers and not very good with, uh, I don't know, absorbing information when it's, it's a limiting belief that really shouldn't be there. I was made to believe that I would always have a very ugly handwriting. That was my myth. <laughs> Look at us now. Look at me now in my neat handwriting. <laughs> um, but actually going off of what you were saying about teachers and the potential, you know, we can call it a danger broadly um, in the sense that it can lead children to believe some things about themselves because teacher themselves really hold those beliefs um, about it. So it became so prevalent that it's actually become a field of study called neuromyths. Um that has its own little definition. So these are usually defined as a misconception generated by a misunderstanding, a misreading, or a misquoting of facts that are scientifically established by by brain research uh, to make a case for the use of brain research in education or other contexts. So it's exactly what you were saying with the left brain, right brain myth that Probably the study was misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Somebody was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely there's, you know, this separation of the hemispheres in the brain. And unfortunately, it's kind of gone through to the point that we're perpetuating that myth. 
I read about this. It's a bit of a conspiracy theory, perhaps, but there's some commercial commercial interest in this. So you know that idea that if you if you get children to do brain games, they'll be much more intelligent. It's a lie. It's not true. It might help with cognitive decline, you know, in older age uh, to keep your brain active. That kind of thing. There's some research that supports that. But getting children to do brain games, it's it really doesn't work in terms of increasing their intelligence or IQ or however you want to measure it. Uh, but it's great for companies telling children's stories because they can do, ooh, your child is too uh, left brain dominant. Let's give them these smart games for their right brain, you know, that kind of thing. And and you you see that a lot. Uh, you just don't realize that it's based on a myth. Well, um, it's exactly like, you know, all that marketing around making sure... Um, that everything you do to your child under the age of three is done absolutely perfectly and you take care of everything so that they have the best development possible because there is uh, this myth going around that all development almost like, you know, the most important bit is before three. And I think whilst there is absolute like heaps of scientific evidence to say that development is important, that early development is crucial and can have you know long effects it's not the end of it either <laughs> and there's evidence to that too it's not the end um, of it for sure but we can i mean i'm a perinatal researcher hit me i know but <laughs> my phd is early life stress <laughs> <laughs> but um no i can definitely see why uh companies would have interest in selling things to parents who have only the best intentions of course for their their infant um or their their toddler and to sell them things to make money off of that um definitely so it's not great i dug into it a little bit more because i was actually really curious to understand why do people believe in those things if it's been debunked, debunked. yeah if they've been debunked many times and there's actually quite a few articles online so i feel like i went back to my psychology and cognitive <laughs> psychology roots um to understand that um and it's quite funny because if you look at meta-analyses uh they try to look into what the most prevalent myths are a lot of those are mm -hmm. myths that we've just discussed um but then they try to look at predictors of what could predict why you would be more likely to believe in those neuromyths or why you would be less likely however there's nothing that's been like extremely conclusive so they say that things like uh completing neuroscience courses having a broader education um or reading peer-reviewed scientific journals can protect you against believing those myths um however that's not great for <laughs> for the general public the, i mean are they going to read yeah, papers i was going to say who's going to read a peer-reviewed scientific paper for fun. I mean, I mean nerds. We have but... an audience full of people that have to read papers almost on the daily, I'd imagine. Who reads beyond the abstract every single time? Raise your hand. No hands have been raised. But there is one half hand. I'll take it. We have uh, one, one in the whole room that uh, swears they read the whole paper. So yes, that, that's not a great way of protecting against believing this kind of myth. And now, but also even if you you read them, I think unless you're yourself quite like 
you know, educated and well-versed in the field, how would you know that you've understood everything properly? When I read things from adjacent fields to mine, I feel like I always need to read them like three times and Google things in 51 tabs on the side to understand them. But it's interesting that you say that because I recent research on neuromyths has yep. shown that if a paper or if a piece of scientific evidence has a picture of a brain with a bit highlighted or a bit a different color, it makes people think that the science there is better. Yes. Even if that bit of brain has nothing to do with what's being explained or if it's just a whole brain that is pink while the other one is green, that's enough for someone to think that that's a better piece of evidence. They call it the seductive allure of neuroscience explanations <laughs> that apparently there is a lot of research that um, supports the idea that if something basically contains uh, either neuropsychology or neuroscience measurement to support the results of an experiment, people are more likely to find the explanation satisfactory. So from what I've read, um, it seems that people are more likely to find an explanation satisfactory if it matches essentially their their prior beliefs. So if it looks plausible, then to judge that explanation based on its quality. Mm -hmm. So they ran a study to look at what, basically to look at decision making based on a piece of evidence that was either plausible, not plausible, or high quality, low quality, and people made decisions based on does it look plausible, yes or no, rather than does this evidence look like it's of high quality or mm -hmm. not. And actually there was quite an interesting study from, it's from 2008, um, so it's not recent anymore, but they looked at how satisfying people found explanations based on whether it had a neuroscience explanation mm -hmm. in it or not. And if the explanation in itself was good or bad. And the first study I think they did on undergrads, but they just compared these two options. And they saw that essentially there was... The fact that there was a neuroscience explanation didn't change how satisfied people were if the explanation was of good quality. But if it was of bad quality, the satisfaction was higher if there was a neuroscience explanation in it. So basically, you can be telling me a story that makes no sense, that has no foundations, but if you throw some difficult words in the field of neuroscience in there, I'm more likely to believe that what you're telling me is true. Yeah, and the, they even checked it a little bit further to check if um, neuroscience education had an effect on this or not. And they saw that in students... Uh, so they tested them before and after a neuroscience class and there was no effect. To be honest, if I'm at a conference and from slide three or four, I miss the train of thought of what's being presented, which happens a lot to me, at least, I assume that they're just so smart that I can't understand it. I never assume that they're bad presenters or that the data doesn't make any sense or it doesn't add up. I'm like, whoa. This is completely over me. I mean, uh, I'm just a child. These people are experts, you know, um, which goes in line with that. And I would say that I probably have a, a, a good neuroscience background. 
Yeah, I think that that's also what was said in a lot of the discussions of these papers is that it might be related to the fact that, you know, neuroscience is so <laughs> alluring or just to the fact that sometimes it looks more technical to a general audience and they might be doing exactly the same if you gave them a piece of jargon from like physics or chemistry. Okay, nerdy fact. Uh, in that study, they um, also did the same thing of, you know, uh, changing the qu the quality, bad or good of the explanation with or without the neuroscience explanation. And neuroscience experts fall for the same thing. No, they didn't. But they rated them as lower if there was a neuroscience explanation. Probably because they could recognize by their, their expertise that it was not sufficient and deep enough in any case because they're experts. And the authors, that's how the authors of the papers explain it, that probably they rated them lower overall because they're basically too knowledgeable. It's like when you send your paper for review and your peers are like, ugh, terrible piece of evidence. No, just happens to me. No, clearly not. What about when you review a paper? I'm so nice. <laughs> First, I don't have enough time to dissect every single detail. Second, I want evidence out there. Unless it's terrible, I'm quite nice. I feel like I'm nice when it's called to be nice, but sometimes I also, you know, feel like it's good. But then there's this one thing. It's the scientist version of being a keyboard warrior. You put all of your frustrations into the peer reviews. I kept thinking about um how people perceive those you know hard sciences mm -hmm. as you know let's say tr as showing evidence that is a bit more quantifiable and reliable which we discussed on a different episode a different of episode. this podcast called is psychology a real science uh, the episode is it's out now <laughs> it's a host only episode but you'll be able to hear the beautiful voice of mariam who who is there for that recording all the way from dubai all the way from Dubai. No, but yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey, everyone, it's Melissa. This episode of At the Back of Your Mind was recorded on the 22nd of March, 2023, featuring our hosts, Carolina and Juliet, and edited by me, Melissa Coase. Be sure to visit inspiretheMind.org forward slash at the back of your mind for more episodes, transcripts, social media and contact information. A big thank you to our team and our editor-in-chief, Professor Carmen Pariante, for helping us bring this podcast to the air. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.